Hi, this is Ron Hogan. You're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Dale Maharaj, and his book is called Bringing Mulligan Home. It's published by Public Affairs. And one of the things that we're going to get into right off the bat, we were talking about this just before I turned the recorder on, is that we weren't entirely sure whether memoir was necessarily the right word for this, although it is certainly rooted in you processing a huge chunk of your life experience. Right. I reported this book more than some of my other books. I spent 12 years on it. I sent hundreds of phone calls in the book. It's really thousands and thousands. I, 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 I tried to find 400 and some men who served with my father in World War II and the Marines in the, in the, in the Pacific. And there had been a uh, his buddy had been killed, and, and, and I grew up with this picture of him and this guy. When he died, it was a mystery. Who was the guy? And that was my initial quest, and so I, I just started calling guys. I had a, a, a Japanese flag my father had. I started with it. It had 22 names on it. And then I, from the flag, I found Ed Hoffman in Minnesota, who sent me the muster rolls, which are the, the log of all the guys who were in the unit. 400 and some names. And so I just started calling there's a Robert Harrison I wanted to find. Alone, I probably made two, three hundred phone calls trying to find Robert Harrison in Texas. No luck. But I did. I found, eventually, I found 29 guys after 12 years. I met with half of them and some of them many times and got to know, know them very, very well. Before you got to that stage, some of the early parts of the book are recounting life with your father and your family in the decades growing up where his war experience was only a decade or two behind him, and the effects were very palpable on you as a young child and a teenager and on your family as well. Yes. As a young boy, the war was omnipresent in this picture that I mentioned, and my father would occasionally, he had these, he, had, he was a, a very wonderful man, but he would turn into the worst man. Us kids would spill water at the table, and he would like explode in anger. Very, very strange. I mean, I, I thought it was normal as a kid, but it infected me, his anger, and at times he would talk about the war in fragments. Only to me, not anybody else in the family. Maybe I was the oldest boy. When I was like eight, nine years old, he was throwing green apples from a tree, fall, falling from a tree in our front yard across the yard, tell me how they used to throw grenades. And I listened rapidly. You know, I learned never to ask questions. He never stated that. It was, it was sort of just understood. Other times he had a side business grinding industrial cutting tools in our basement. And I started working with him when I was 12. And every, I don't know, three, four months, I don't remember exactly, but something like that, roughly, he would give something about the war. Something would trigger something. He would, uh, one night, I'll never forget, I was 12 years old. I'm, I was grinding on the machine next to him. The picture's in the background. And he was screaming about the night on Guam, during the Battle of Guam, when there were uh, soldiers uh, uh, dying all around and the Japanese were attacking. He was stacking dead bodies around him. To, to protect himself. And he told me about the Marines who were screaming about they want they wanted their mothers. He, he started yelling, shut up, shut up. Of course, there was a word between shut and up uh, that <laughs> rhymes with up, uh, uh, sort of. Uh, to, uh, to, to just And I realized he wasn't screaming to me. He was screaming about he was back there. He was back in that. So again, I just listened. And then no war for months. So it was fragmented. Never a complete picture. Clearly something horrible had happened to him. And by the age of a teenage, I realized it was the war. The war had affected him. 
Of course, I didn't know about traumatic brain injury at that time. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about blast concussion, what it did. None of us did uh, in America. It was get over the war, you know, forget about it, move on, pretend. This is one of the things that Mad Men does very well, the, 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 the show, about Don Draper. Just, you know, just pretend it never happened. That was his mantra. And my dad never said that, but that's pretty much how he lived, pretend it never happened. But, of course... His brain was damaged, and it affected his life and our lives. Right. I know, like, you read in the book about how your your mom, her explanation was, oh, you know, his mother screwed him up. And it's like, I mean, that's a very convenient explanation, but as you are pointing out, clearly something had hap- else had happened. Yes. And that was part of my quest. See, initially, it's like, I'm going to find this guy in the picture. And then this is where the memoir comes in, the blend of memoir and reporting. Then I realized... That wasn't really my quest. It was the war and how it affected not only my father and our family, but the other guys I was meeting. Because I was hearing these, these stories of trauma. And through the years, tremendous trauma. And so it was, it was sort of like a massive therapeutic session. Meeting these guys and getting to know them and talk to them and, and learn. They were within feet of my father in these battles. And learn how their lives had gone and how it affected their families. So it was much, much faster. At the same time, it was all very personal. That's one of the things I want to talk about in the second section of the book, where you're, you're getting to talk to these guys who, in many cases, were standing just feet away from your father. And the accumulated interviews that you do with these guys triangulates, and even more, I think even more precise than triangulating, because you're getting much more perspectives, you really get this accumulative picture of several incidents that happened in that division. Right. There were several key incidents. There was the Battle of Guam and that night of the counterattack. The guys, I mean, Mr. LePant, you know, who's second guy I document in the book, just in cinematic detail. He, when you talk to Mr. LePant, I met him with him six hours each time, three times, and it was just like, it drained me, it drained him. And you realize that had a, not only an impact on physical danger, but mentally. It affected every guy who was there. The second big incident was Sugarloaf Hill in the Battle of Okinawa, where the Marines were sent down the island to run through it. The intelligence was horrible. Admiral Nimitz, who was the ultimate leader of the battle, there was the army generals under him, they used the same intelligence that they used for Iwo Jima, which was flawed. They had transferred out, weirdly transferred out the experts and put in greenhorns. They had no intelligence. So they sent these guys down basically beneath the Japanese guns. And the night of May 15th and 16th, the morning of the 16th, they got wailed on. My dad, a whole bunch of guys, they weren't killed. They were taken out from, they called it shell shock, but it was really, or battle fatigue. But it was, the shells were blowing up within, Fenton Brainerd said a shell blew up right in front of his hole. He said, I could have leaned and spit out the hole in the crater. And he said, I, I lost my mind. And, and again, it's not that they were scared or uh, it was their brains were were were, were damaged. The um, uh, a scientist I talked to, uh, Dr. Smith at University of Pennsylvania, he described it as silly putty. He says, Dale, we have these, these axons that connect the cells in our brains. If I take silly putty and pull it slowly, it stretches. You know, if, if I bump my head with my book right now, that they would they would just go stretch. I would have no damage. But if blast concussion, it's like you take that silly putty, it's pull it, it snaps and cracks. The accents and they never heal, they atrophy 
There's plaques that form. One of the symptoms is uncontrollable rages. Alzheimer's, you know, we see that in sports figures today. Uh, football players, boxers, you don't want to get a concussion. All these guys got blast concussion that night. My dad had double-dose blast concussion. The third major incident in the book is the tomb, which was below Naha. My dad's buddy, Herman Mulligan, threw a grenade into this burial tomb. They didn't know it. There was machine gunners on the hill, and they thought the machine gunners were in there. There was a thousand pound, I mean, sorry, a ton, 2,000 pounds of munitions in there. It went up like a volcano, the guys told me. And a chunk of the roof landed on Mulligan. Every guy who was within sight of that or, 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 or realm of that tomb got severe blast concussion. So my dad had at least two major blast concussions. And Dr. Smith told me the cumulative effect worsens it. So you don't get over the axon snapped in your brain. As, as I wrote in the book, my dad, my dad had a head filled with snap silly putty. Where this gets very back to the memoir realm is right in the middle of this research, my mom died cancer. A horrible, it's called a cordoma on her spine. Slow, slow, horrible end. Uh, years. And I gave up. I couldn't handle it emotionally. I had to take care of my mom. I couldn't, de I couldn't deal. And then I was pulled back because I was talking to one of the guys. He said, the kids today have to know what it really was like. And I started thinking about it and I realized this story is it's about all wars. We can safely talk about World War II because it's the good war, which none of the guys called it that, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, and we can see the cumulative effects of blast concussion. The roadside bombs in Iraq, in Iraq and Afghanistan, these soldiers, men and women who are getting blast concussions today, will have the same impact on them as my father and their children. And I'm really, I, I, I've actually heard from one Afghanistan vet already, a do medical doctor. He says, I'm giving my book to my, your book to my patients, and I'm recommending my fellow physicians give the book. They need to know what's in store for them. That email, it was like a thousand-word email, and I, I, I replied, I, got a, I just got another thousand-word email from this medical doctor. Uh, humbled me. It actually set me, not into a, I don't know what it set me into, it set me into a, a state of both, that's why I wrote the book, and it was happiness and a state of depression. That just goes on and on and on. A lot of the veterans that you interviewed that served with your father, they were pretty explicit about that connection, too. I mean, they would talk about how, as the early years of the of the Afghan war, they did not necessarily see it as a good thing. And they, they, they pr could pretty much see the writing on the wall for, for the soldiers today. Here's the interesting thing, uh, Ron. We have, we go to a war in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. People on the left are against it, and I was against it. Then I met these guys. With the exception of maybe one or two of them, they are conservative. These are not liberal guys. Our politics don't mesh, but this wasn't about politics. I don't care about their politics. It's about life. So we never talked politics. I never brought up Afghanistan or Iraq. They, to a man, brought it up and said, why are we there? So these are the conservatives. They know what war does. One of the guys talked his grandson out of enlisting. He said, you don't want, you don't want to go. You do not want to sing your life. So these guys are very wise. I had an interesting discovery, again, back to the memoir part of it. The guy who bought my dad's business in Cleveland, I was back there in 2011, early 2011, and something I never knew. My father told him, he taught, he taught him how to run the business for, for about six months. And he said, if there's ever a war, I'm driving my sons to Canada. My dad never told, he never would have told us that. He was, he was just like them. They were, they were, they're the, one critic 
calls the book anti-soldier. No, and, and I was my agenda that it's anti-war. No, it was the guys, not me. And I was also struck that many of the family members of these guys would tell you, you know, they'd kind of pull you aside or find some way of, of speaking with you privately and say, you know, you're the first person that, you know, dad or grandpa or my husband has ever spoken to about any of this stuff. It was interesting. I, uh, I well, this phenomenon fast. It's actually, it's a whole other book. Something about hitting your 80s. People realize you're getting near the end, and it's like, it's okay to talk. Uh, Richard Rhodes, the, the writer, I met him at the Mayborn Literary Journalism Conference. He was the keynote speaker. I was a second banana speaker last year. And Dick Rhodes is an amazing man. And we hit it off, and he wanted to see the manuscript, and he read it like in three days. and gave me a blurb. But his wife apparently deals with vets and psychological issues. And he said, she's noticed the same thing. So they hit the 80s, they're talking. So it's it's a book that couldn't have been done before now, really, to get this level of intimacy, this level of, in some cases, confess, deathbed confessions. Jim Lockeridge just spilled his guts about the atrocities he committed. He, he pulled gold teeth from the cadavers, Japanese cadavers, and regretted it. Jim was very smart, and he was very... Repentance sounds too, it's too simplistic. He was reflecting on his life, and I, his daughter Melody Simmons and I have talked since... And she said, Dale, you came along at a great time. He was ready to talk, and it helped him sort his life out. He says, you, She said, you helped him get rid of the poison out of his system. That's the kind of liter you know, journey of the journalist as a writer. It's any other story, and I've done some very intimate stories, but this one was right in my marrow. Because I was really I had, basically I had a dozen adopted dads to talk to. How, how, it's a, I view it as a gift. It's, it's intense, it's hard, but what a gift for me to have had these guys in my life. And they're dying now. A couple have died in the last six months, and it's like my dad dying all over again, because I really love these guys. So, yeah, it's, it's a very intimate in a way that transcends anything I've done in my life. There's also a really powerful example of, in addition to you know the dozen or so adoptive dads that come out of these interviews, you write about the one figure who these guys were telling you about over the course of these interviews. He's called Kennedy in the book. And he's not a good soldier. He's the one guy I hate. And all the guys hate him. I grew up hearing about Kennedy. My dad talked about this guy in the company from Park Avenue, from Money. He was he was dapper. He was this. He was that. And my dad was blue-collar, grew up in poverty. If you saw the movie The Deer Hunter, that church and the wedding scene takes place... My grandfather's cousin was one of the seven founders of that church. It's in the south side of Cleveland. And that, the scenes are that very, just impoverished, rough background. So he worshipped money. At the same time, eventually my dad told me that Kennedy had raped a woman in Okinawa. And my dad, my dad was, a, was, for a man of his era, was amazingly feminist. He, he was really uh, respected women. He did not, his daughter, my sister, uh, went to college where the other men from the American daughters don't send them to college. No, she's going to college. She's going to do something. My dad was progressive. He hated the rape, but he worshipped Kennedy for the money. So I start talking to these guys, and I hear about the rape from all of them. More and more details. Fenton Grainer, 65 years after the crime, was weeping when he told me about, about a week, either before or after the rape. It's unclear. There was a, a night they were on guard duty, and there was motion out there in the night, and they yelled, stop, stop. There was a 
old man in the unit who was 41. They opened up with the BAR, this automatic weapon, and they heard babies, baby cry. So Fenton Greiner said, I ran right down there. Fenton had a year and a half old daughter at home at that point. And it was adult, male, adult woman, baby strapped on each back. The adults are dead. One baby's arm is hanging by a thread. One baby's uninjured. Kennedy was on, on, on duty that with him, comes down out of the dark and says, we got these babies up to the corpsman, to the medics. And Kennedy, is, as, as Fenton told me, said, hell we will. And they argued. You know, we have to kill him. And Fenton said, who's going to kill him? I will. And argue, argue, argue. And then at uh, one point, uh, Kennedy pulls out his revolver, his pistol, and says, you know, if you try to stop me, I'll shoot you. And he shoots the babies in the head. Fenton Grainert was weeping, sobbing, as he told me this. He says, it bugged me the rest of my life, but I thought he was going to kill me. And this guy was a creep. This guy was a psychopath. Long story short, I found him. We buried my mom and my dad at Arlington, and I drove into the mountains and the East Coast. I'm not going to say where. Very remote rural area. And I met with him in his remote cabin on a gravel road. When I walked in the door, oh, I, got, I woke up to the door. It's, it's Again, there's no one around. Nearest neighbor's probably a half mile away. I, I knock. It's a screen door, and I hear, get in here. So I open up the door, and it's a bedroom. And it's on the bed, white-sheeted, tight-sheeted bed, is a brown revolver holster. Empty. No gun in it. I go into the, down the hall, get an immaculate room, big black leather couch, Kennedy sitting in a, in a, in a easy chair with a blanket. Both of his hands are hidden, and there's a black pistol holder on the holster on the seat on the, of the um, couch. Empty of gun. I, I just figure, I, I've heard about you all my entire life, Mr. Mr. Kennedy. Glad to finally meet you. I was scared. I didn't show it. Shook his hand. One hand came out of the blanket. Three-hour interview. To make a very long story short, very tense interview, he made it clear there was at least a cold python around. And I asked him about the rape in terms of not like, I know you did it, Kennedy. It was, I'm not that brave. <laughs> and he denied it. He denied it. And I don't know what's inside of his head, whether he has nightmares or he sleeps like a, like a baby. I don't know. But he was pathetic. And he represents a dark side of any war. Psychopaths are, you know, a lot of soldiers are, you know, in modern times they're poor, they have no choice. But every war and every culture, we get the psychopaths who go into war. And he was the psychopath in my dad's company. You mentioned earlier that going through these interviews and learning the truth about your dad's war experiences or the fuller truth of your dad's war experiences, you mentioned the therapeutic effect that they had on you. And I wanted to explore that a little further because it it sounds like it not only helped you make sense of your father's pain, but that it also resolved a lot of questions that you had about your own family experiences growing up. Oh, yes. I mean, again, if we had known, we could have cured Dad. We could have, like, backed off and just let him blow and not react to it. It's not him, it's the brain injury. I think if you had that knowledge, I can't say I would have been the same, but I, I would have treated him better. You know, many a time I would yell back and we'd get into these big fights. And it was for, I was really for naught. He couldn't help it. What's interesting is, in the short time the book has been out, I'm getting Facebook messages and emails from people my age who said, I understand my dad now. 
I didn't know. Those messages, there's probably been 20 or 30 of them, and Vietnam vets, oh my God, they're plugging into this book. Not, forget all the other reviews. Those are the reviews that count. Because I think as a culture, you know, as, as Tom Price essentially told me, one of the veterans from the company, Dale, we love war. We're always at war in this country. We are. And I look at Japan. I don't know Germany. I didn't look at that. But they haven't been in war in 69 years. How many wars have we had since World War II? You know, so we can vilify them. And, you know, they were, they were wrong. But I think if you start thinking about what war means and what it does to us, this is why I say it transcends. It was, so it was personally redemptive for me. I understand my father. But the fact that other people are finding solace in understanding their fathers, that was the, that was the, that was the value of doing this for me. And as we said at the very beginning, it is really founded on, in terms of the writing of it, not just going through your, your experience, but using the tools and the skills that you developed as a professional journalist. I mean, that reportive element is absolutely key to making this story work. Well, I tell my students, almost any story, you know, if you look at my other books, there's some memoir in all of them. Uh, you know, it's 15, 20% memoir, 60% reporting, and the rest is like synthesizing history and contextualizing. I think that's the secret to, to this kind of to literary journalism. This one is more like, 40% memoir. I mean, you want to count really the, the journey of the interviews within the interviews as I'm asking the questions. It's part of the memoir. Maybe it's 50% memoir. I don't know how, how you describe it. But I think if I just sat in a room and wrote about my father, it would have been a, a, a flat book. Even if I had understood blast concussion and just covered it clinically and just wrote about how his rages affected me, it would have been one and a half dimensional. And I think, I hope that it's more three-dimensional with the experiences of others to give perspective. The kids of these guys, to give to, to my experience, to the reader coming to it, trying to learn about what war does to people. I hope it's more full. I'm too close to it, of course, to judge that. But that was my goal, at least. And it's fascinating to me that in terms of being in the place to tell this story and to report the story and to do all this, it all cycles back to a moment that you write about in the early sections of the book where, I mean, you were pretty much on a path to take over the business from your dad. And at some point you just decided, you pretty much, as you write about it, you walked into the Cleveland Plain Dealer and said, I think I want to be a journalist. Where my motorcycle down. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like 19. I want, to, I want to write for you. The moment it was, it was building, I was a, you know, I had a checkered college career. And my dad was, again, my dad was a very loving guy. He worked his butt off. And I, I, I dropped out of college and uh, uh, helped him get the business to another level where he was able to go full-time. I was sales repping for him. And one of my trips was into the Aluminum Company of America plant on the rim of the Cuyahoga Valley overlooking the steel mills in Cleveland. And there was a giant stepping press. And I was delivering tools, and it was doing secret government work. Of course, I ignored the signs. I went behind the plywood petition. Three stories tall, this thing would come down and mash a, a jet part for a fighter jet. The thunderclap was so loud. It was so intense. It was like an earthquake every time it hit. And I never forget, it came down, dust billowed, my ears were ringing, and and I thought Pink Floyd's Welcome to the Machine was just out on the charts then. And that song just ever just stuck in my head. Welcome, my son. Welcome to the machine. I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm, I've always wanted to be a writer. I'm just going to 
So I went out to the coin dealer, announced myself, and I just started writing for him. And I basically wrote my way out of the factories. And in his deathbed, my dad said, best thing he ever did. He didn't want me to have any business. He was happy I got out. With the book out now, what stories are you, or are you looking at new stories? That... This is an interesting time. This is my 10th book. My other books have focused on poverty in class to some degree. Uh, it's been my theme. Tom Wolfe talks about a writer having his or her theory of everything, and mine has been class. Uh, although a poet, a friend once told me, she says, no, no, dude, dude it's, it's, it's displacement. And actually it's a sub-theme, class and, and displacement. But I'm at a juncture. This is the first time in maybe 15 years I've gone book to book to book to book to book. I did three books amid doing the research for this book. I did Homeland, Denison, Iowa, and uh, someplace like America in the, in, the, in the aughts. I don't know what I'm doing next. Uh, I did my first fiction. It was a novella called Leapers. It came out last fall. And it's, it's part of what I want to be a series. And I've got, I got the second one in mind. I'm probably going to spend this summer working on it. But as far as nonfiction, I have no idea, and I'm happy. This summer is going to be a discovery of what that next will be. I'm sure it will involve displacement in class. But it won't be anything to do with war. It won't be anything to do with poverty. But what it will be, I have no idea. It's interesting that you say that you're happy not to have a story in mind, because I'm sure that as fulfilling as working on this story has been, and, and the stories that you were working on around it, that it also feels really good to have it behind you, in a sense. I talked. I gave a talk at Politics and Prose two weeks ago, and I began my first time talking about the book, and I said, this is the hardest talk I'll ever give, because it's so close. I'm not sure I can do it a hundred times. I'm speaking at Book Passage in Corte Madera in a few weeks. Second or third talk, so I'll be the second talk, I don't think I'm going to give 20 or 30 talks. Uh, my publicist is trying to get me into Walter Reed to talk to the Soldiers who are, have traumatic brain injury, that's a talk I'll give, I don't care. But I don't think I'm going to be going around doing every little Tom, Dick, and Harry thing, which I, I usually, I'm glad to do with all my books. I, I love talking. I remember one time I was in Petaluma, California at a bookstore, and only six people showed up. Is you guys hungry? Yeah, let's go get some pizza. And I, we give a, I give my book talk around a pizza table across the street. I love talking about my books. This one, it's got a lifespan. I'm not going to talk about it a hundred times. Well, I'm really glad that I got in early enough to be able to have one of these conversations with you about Bringing Mulligan Home. I've been talking with Dale Maharaj. The book is called Bringing Mulligan Home, and it's published by Public Affairs. And I hope that you guys will check it out. And I hope that you'll come back for another episode of Life Story soon. Thanks.